You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Okay, so Revelation 12. If you remember last week, we did, I think, just the first six verses. It was a fascinating chapter titled the message, The Unseen War. The Unseen War being that it's one of these unusual chapters that gives us a glimpse behind the spiritual realm of what is going on in the world. And particularly, we looked at this in the context of anti-Semitism, that is looking at persecution against the Jewish people, and we understood that this was an attempt to stop messianic line. Behind the scenes going on was that Satan knew the seed of the woman would one day come and crush his head. Therefore, ever since the beginning of history, we see him try to stop that. Firstly, with Cain killing Abel, then with the persecution trying to stop the Jewish Messiah coming into the world. And after he failed at that, trying to stop the Jewish people petitioning the second coming of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do now is briefly recap those first six verses for context, and then we'll move in to the rest of the passage. Verse 1, it says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labour and in pain to give birth. Remember this, so we identified the woman was Israel. The imagery of the sun, the moon and the stars being drawn from the book of Genesis chapter 37, Joseph's dream of all his brothers bowing down to him, that identifies the woman as Israel. Remember we said that Israel was the vehicle that brought the Messiah into the world, salvation is from the Jews, Jesus was obviously Jewish. Verse 3, then another a sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. The second sign in this chapter is, of course, the dragon. Needs no introduction. This was, of course, Satan. And the ten heads, the ten horns, we spoke about that briefly. It's representative of the government in these last days. The picture is that Satan has control of the world system. So what we have is a woman, Israel, who was created to bring forth the Messiah, who would one day defeat the dragon, Satan, who is the one controlling the fallen world. The dragon, in his long-standing war against this adversary, against the Messiah, knew that this day would come, and he's put all his efforts into making sure it doesn't come. From the beginning, the dragon anticipated the return, the arrival of the Messiah, and sought to stop that. And I rise basically the whole Bible by looking at it through these two themes. God's promise to bring a Messiah into the world, and then Satan's attempt to stop that happening. If you search world history, you really can understand it like that. Satan first heard about this child right back in the Garden of Eden. As soon as sin entered this world and he had tempted Adam and Eve to sin, God made the promise of a redeemer, the seed of the woman, who would crush his head. Therefore, remember, Genesis chapter 4, immediately you have Satan move to make Cain kill Abel, the first murder in human history. It's no surprise that we have those two things running after each other. His reason was he did not want any chance of this seed of this woman coming who would one day destroy him. That was his first attempt. Then God narrowed down the promise of the Messiah to the line of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to the Jewish people. Therefore, this gave also Satan more of a focus for his attacks and this is why he has persecuted the Jewish people I gave you a few examples from history starting right in the book of Exodus the Hebrew midwives who were told by Pharaoh to kill their children and they refused and then of course Israel ended up being in slavery in Egypt for a long time 
We went all through the Old Testament briefly. We saw Esther, this Persian ruler called Haman, who again tried to exterminate the Jews. We looked into the times of the Greeks. Antiochus, the leader of the Greeks at that time, he wanted to destroy the Jews too. The Romans weren't so much interested in destroying the Jews, but they were not really particularly favourable in many ways to the Jews. However, Satan could not stop the arrival of Christ. The Messiah came in humble circumstances, and the shepherds worshipped, glory was announced to the earth, and then, remember, he tried again. He moved that evil man, Herod, to try and destroy this baby when he was still young, and he slaughtered all the babies in Bethlehem. But still, Messiah could not be touched. He grew, he lived, he taught. Ultimately, he died, and he was resurrected. And from that moment, Satan then changed, really, his strategy. He had not stopped the first coming of Messiah, and now his efforts are trying to stop Messiah coming back and delivering that crushing blow to Satan's head. He knows that to do this, the Jewish people will petition his return. As Jesus promised, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If Satan can destroy the Jews, he can stop that from ever happening. Therefore, in his mindset, that is what he's going for. This is why we see all throughout history continued attempts to destroy the Jewish people. It's the unseen war going on behind it. Modern history can be understood like that, must be interpreted like that. So then let's pick it up in verse 5. It says, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. We did cover this last time. The son, of course, the male child being the, the Messiah who rules the nations with a rod of iron. The child caught up to God and his throne. Now, we didn't really talk about this last time. So this, I believe, is referring, the word caught up there, you might recognise that. It's actually the same word as rapture. It basically means a physical transportation from one place to another. This is most likely talking about the ascension of, of Jesus Christ. When he, after he'd been resurrected, he then went up to the Father's throne, caught up to God and to his throne. It's speaking of the ascension. He went back to heaven, where he is to remain, until the period of restoration spoken of by the prophets. These are big themes in the Bible. Acts chapter 3, verse 19 to 21, listen to these words. Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. You notice that wording there whom heaven must receive in the ascension until the restoration of all things which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So the Lord went back to heaven to sit with his father on his throne until a certain time when the restoration of all things will take place. That's a way of referring to the kingdom age. We're reading the book of Revelation. We're, we're looking at that period just before the kingdom age starts and the restoration of all things happens. And the Lord says it's time, and that is basically what we've been studying through Revelation. Now let's go into verse 6 of Revelation 12. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now we have to be a little careful here. Now remember I said the context of Revelation 12 is dealing with this unseen war. The conflict as we have it, particularly in the context of Revelation, the final seven years of history. Now, of course, last week I showed you that this war extends throughout the whole of human history, from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, but specifically, Revelation 12, we're in the middle of this final seven-year period. And we've just looked at the birth 
and the ascension of Christ. And then immediately in verse 6, we have this passage of the woman fleeing into the wilderness. This doesn't really fit any of the history to do with the birth and ascension of Jesus Christ. So we are now back in the context of the final seven years of history. That's it. And it's unusual because it's almost if you just read those two verses, there's like a 2,000 year gap in between them. You can see from the child, Jesus being ascended to this final year period. So far, it's 2,000 years. But this shouldn't surprise us. It's actually quite a common feature to have this 2,000 year, this church gap in between. And I want to give you one example of that just to show you because it's a, it's a much contested point of theology. These two events, the first coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ, often when the prophets speak of them, they're kind of like telescoped together, if I could say it like that. They're, they're spoken of ver- just one verse onto the next, even though we know with hindsight through the church age, there's a massive gap in between. And that's what we have happening in Revelation here. And it's actually Jesus who does this for us and gives us the interpreter, interpretation like this. Let me read you one passage. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2, gives you just such a clear example of this. So Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2, says this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favourable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. So that was the prophecy of Messiah, some of the ministry that he would be doing in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Now, obviously, that was written about 500 years before Jesus existed. If you jump to Luke chapter 4, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ, he's in a synagogue in Nazareth, and he is the one who is selected to read the weekly Bible Torah portion, and he is reading from Isaiah 61. And let me read to you the narrative, Luke chapter 4, verse 17. So it says, the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favourable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant, he sat down and all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him and he said to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now notice what he did. He stopped reading in the middle of a verse. Look at, look at Isaiah 61, it says to proclaim the favourable year of the Lord and then it immediately says, and the day of vengeance of our God. In Isaiah, these two things are right after each other. Like, but Jesus, when he's reading... He knows that one is related to his first coming, one is related to his second coming. So the one that is related to his first coming is proclaiming the favourable year of the Lord, setting the captives free, preaching the gospel. So he says, now this is being fulfilled. But he stopped. He didn't read the second part, the day of vengeance of our God, because he knows that's coming later. That's actually what we're studying in the book of Revelation, the day of the vengeance of our God. So he is the one who showed us this this method that quite often these two things are put together, even though there's this whole 2,000-year church age in between. And that is exactly what we have going on here in Revelation 12. It talks about the first coming, Jesus Christ being ascended up to the Father. We know that he is only going to stay there until the time is right for him to come back. And that is the final period of history. But now we're back in verse 6 in this period where the tribulation period. And we know this also because you get that time reference, don't you? 
12,000 the days there, it says. It's that three-and-a-half-year period that it's talking about again. Revelation 12 is one of these chapters that pulls together so many different strands of prophecy that are woven throughout the whole Bible, and you see them fit here in a chrono chronological sequence. I want you to try and, try and explain this to you so you can follow it through. There, it's really quite fascinating when you look at it. So we've got the three-and-a-half years. Now notice... We've hopefully already noticed Revelation is a very Jewish book. We've had huge amounts of themes that, are, you know, the temple, the two witnesses, the prophets. It's a very Jewish-focused book. And now we are again having Israel being called out to the wilderness where they will be supernaturally nourished for three and a half years. Now, whereas if you're a Jewish person, the talk of being called out to the wilderness to be supernaturally protected, of course, is an Exodus reference. This is exactly what happened with the first exodus. Many people call this almost the second exodus that we have occurring in this final period. But let's remember our chronology. In chapter 11, we looked at these people, the two witnesses, these two prophets who were up near the temple and they were prophesying and they were protected and they couldn't be killed until God, remember, until they'd finished their testimony and then God allowed the, the Antichrist to kill them. And we remember we saw that they were then resurrected and they rose up to heaven and that was the midpoint of the tribulation. And I argued that it was at that moment that that allowed the Antichrist to enter the temple. He couldn't do that probably before because of the ministry of these two prophets. They were supernaturally protected. But now he's able to enter the temple, proclaim himself as God, commit what we call the abomination in the temple. And really it's the final part where he tries to get the world to worship him the Apostle Paul writes of this. He says, let no one deceive you, for it will not come until the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship, and he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. You can see how close we're getting to the end, because God will not allow that sort of thing to go on for too long here. But it's at this midpoint, there's three and a half years left. We get that time period over and over again. And this is exactly why, when you understand these things fitting together, do you remember Jesus in Matthew 24? He said to the disciples, he gave us this teaching, he said, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down and get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not get his cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing in those days. Pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation since has not occurred since the beginning of the world, nor will ever be. So all these themes are coming together. They're speaking of this same period of history. The abomination is when the Antichrist finally enters the temple, sets himself up, at God. Jesus says to the people listening, when that happens, you need to get out of town and you need to do it very, very quickly. There won't even be time for you to go and get your belongings. Just head to the wilderness. They're told to flee. There's such an urgency at this time. And in Revelation 12, we're seeing the sort of spiritual element behind this. Why do they need to flee so urgently? It says the woman fled to the wilderness. Israel, the remnant of faithful Jews, are to flee to the mountains. And if you've ever seen the Judean wilderness, um, it's pretty rocky. It's not like a Sahara desert, like we're thinking like that. It's, it's mountainous wilderness. There's not much there, but obviously very good for hiding in. This is what Revelation 12 is getting at. 
Why did they have to flee with such urgency? Revelation 12, verse 7, 8 and 9 explain this for us in the spiritual concept. Verse 7, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and the angels were thrown down with him. This is why there's such urgency to this call for them to relieve. Satan is thrown down with great wrath to the earth now. This is a, we're so close to the end at this point. The tremors of these birth pangs are getting so quick, just like a woman in labour, they get more and more and more until the end. This is what is happening here. War in heaven. Two sides. Now, again, it's very hard for us to picture what this actually means, how this war is fought. I, I don't have any insight on that. But you obviously have Michael, the archangel, with his angels, and you have Satan with his angels who followed him in rebellion, and they are fighting. We have a mistake in the Christian mindset sometimes that we kind of put God and Satan opposed to each other, like they're two sides of an opposing force. Now, obviously, one is pure goodness, one is pure evil in that sense, but there's no comparison outside of that. God is the creative being above all these things. If you wanted a better comparison, it would be Michael and Satan as the sort of high-ranking angels. Now, we see this passage make sense of another text. Michael here, behind the scenes, is standing up to protect Israel at this time when they're having to flee to the wilderness. We know from Daniel 12, verse 1, that Michael was the protector of Israel. We're not told much else about him, but we know this. It says, at that time... Speaking of the end time, the great prince, Michael, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until now. That's where Jesus gets his words from. It's the same words there. We see him fighting on behalf of Israel, and it says there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Very unusual verse. There's whole books written speculating about what this means. It does seem to imply that Satan has access into the heavenlies up until this point anyway now this is strange to us because often we we have this with the way we explain it is that nothing unholy can enter god's presence and whilst there's some truth in that it doesn't seem to apply to the angelic realm at this stage he is allowed to come before and make accusation against the saints whilst he is being deceived but at a certain point in history this point that we are studying right now he is thrown down that access is taken away Verse 9, it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. Now look at the names given us here. The great dragon, the serpent of old, the devil and Satan. Just as Christ has many names that tell us a little bit different about his character, we have this too here for Satan. The great dragon, of course, that's the viciousness of Satan, eats and destroys. The serpent of old. Now that is, of course, a reference right back to the first Appearance of Satan, the serpent that deceived Eve back in the Garden of Eden. This is emphasizing that he is a deceiver. His deceptive work goes all the way back to the beginning. And then we have the devil. This is the word diabolos. This one means the slanderer or the accuser. He is the one that slanders and accuses the saints before the Lord. And then it says, who deceives the whole world. I find that a fascinating statement tells us of the work of Satan. I want you to really think about this. He deceives the whole world. 
1 John 5, 3 says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Don't misunderstand, of course, God is sovereign on the whole earth, but it's talking about the world system of fallen mankind, the dominion that was handed over to him when Adam fell, that is Satan. It's all part of this unseen war. He is a liar, he is deceiver. Do you remember Jesus said that when you're speaking to the Pharisees and they're lying, you are of your father who lied from the beginning. He is a liar. It's part of his nature, basically. He is that deceiver and that liar. He is very good at it. And he has marshaled all of the resources over history to deceive the whole world. You see it in our day just as much as you did in any other era of history. Educated and ignorant, king and pauper, male and female, Jew or Gentile, strong, weak, young, old, rich, poor, all can be deceived by him. Think of all the world's religions. Hinduism, Jainism, Sikhism, Baha'i, Islam, Sufism, Judaism, Kabbalah, mysticism, New Age, spiritualism, Zoroastrianism, Scientology, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, all of these things have a few things in common. They deny that Christ is king. And thus they are all deceptions from the deceiver. Because when you understand it in the context of the unseen war, that has always been his objective, to take away any power that Christ had. Of course he fails in that. But these are his attempts in the world. They are designed to keep people from this male child that he hates so much. All the world's high-sounding philosophies, the ones that are conceived by some of the most brilliant thinkers in this world, pragmatism, atheism, idealism, Gnosticism, determinism, hedonism, materialism, communism, transcendentalism, existentialism, deism, and countless others, millions of others we could say, all of these things go on and on and on. What's the thing that binds them all together? They all deny Christ. They're all man's opinions. That's not that there isn't some truth in many of these systems, but without Christ, that truth goes off and it ends up in falsehood, basically. He's a master deceiver. Think about all the other ones that are named after the brilliant people who originated them. Aristotelianism, Platonism, Hegelianism, Marxism, Maoism, Confucianism, Kantianism, Freudianism, and Darwinism in our day, the big ones. Same again. All of these things, ways to explain the world without God. Lurking behind all of these things is this serpent of old, this deceiver who deceives the whole world. And if he gets you to come away from Christ, if he can get you to understand the world as you think without Christ, he's done his work. Now, we need to make sure as believers that we do not fall for the schemes of the evil one. In fact, the Bible tells us very clearly we are not to be ignorant of his schemes. And that is something I don't think we emphasise enough. We are not to be ignorant of his schemes. Therefore, studying passages like we're studying is a very good example. 2 Corinthians 2.11, he says, So that no one, no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. As he doesn't actually say we are not to be ignorant, he says we are not ignorant of his schemes, implying that he's already assumed that you've studied the word of God to know this. How do we make sure that we are not ignorant? How do we stand against a master deceiver like Satan? The answer is actually quite simple. You can probably see where I'm going with this. The Apostle Paul gave us the answer. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armour of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The armour of God, your salvation, your faith, your righteousness, most importantly, the belt of truth that you'll have around your waist, the word of God, is how you stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Think of what we studied in Isaiah. 
If they speak not according to this word, there is no light in them. Reject them. The word of God is a light. That's why we have this wonderful picture of the light to our feet, the lamp to our path. As we walk through this world that is under the sway of the evil one, where deceptions are rising left, right and centre, to stay on the narrow path is to follow the word of God. In our world, that means following Jesus Christ and his word. That's it. That's the sim- it's very, I know it practically works out harder than that in this world, but that is the theology behind it. And we're going to see in a couple of chapters that Satan is going to bring his ultimate deceptive tool to play in these last days, trying to get that final period in the world. We call him the false prophet. He's going to pull together all of his resources that he has access to in these last days to try and deceive the world. Let's go back to Revelation verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcome him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come to you having great wrath, knowing he has only a short time. That's the point. Remember, why did Jesus say, when this happens, this midpoint of the tribulation, get out of this place very quickly. Something something serious is about to happen. This is what he's talking about. He knows the war in heaven. Michael was going to cast Satan down to the earth. And then Satan is going to come down and he is angry. He comes down with great wrath. That's what we have going on here. But in verse 10, we see this other declaration. Salvation, power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come. It's almost like one of those pre-arrival announcements. In, In the author's opinion, it's already done. It's confirmed. The kingdom's come. Chronologically, we're still just a few steps away. But in prophetic language, he's speaking like it's already occurred. Christ has won at this point, and now we're just wrapping up these final few things that's going on here. We saw a similar one in verse 11, in chapter 11. Satan's removal from God's heaven, access that he has to come before and accuse the saints, is really the beginning of the end, so to speak. And Satan knows it at this point. But I love those words, the salvation, the power, the kingdom, and the authority of his Christ. And that, remember, that reads his anointed one. It's referring us back to the, the psalm in chapter 2 where it says the kings of the earth rage against the God and his anointed one, the Son. But the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs, basically. And, the, and it says that the, the anointed one will be there until he says, go and make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the time we're reading about. Basically, God's saying now, go and make the enemies a footstool for your, seat, your feet. And Messiah is about to come and take back his kingdom. It calls Satan the accuser here, the one who accuses them before God day and night. And it's a present tense of this word. It means he is still presently accusing the saints. And it's unusual. We seem to get this this way that he's allowed into the throne room of God to accuse the saints. We see that in Job and a few different texts. I won't read them for the sake of time. But he's allowed to do that. Now, why does Satan always have reason to accuse the saints? Because the saints still sin. You say We, we give him reason in that respect. However, Satan doesn't fathom the grace of God and the atonement that God, the victory that God won on the cross. Because look at the next verse, and this is wonderful. Every accusation that Satan can bring against a believer in Jesus Christ is dismissed. And why is it dismissed? Look at verse 11. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. 
and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. The saints overcome all of his accusations, whatever he can bring, because of the blood of the Lamb. Because of Jesus Christ, his death as the substitute Passover Lamb. This is why at the beginning of Revelation we had that picture of the throne room of God and we saw at the centre of the throne it said the Lamb as it had been slain. This is what he's referring us to here. The substitutionary death of Christ on the cross justifies us and it basically rules out any accusation that Satan can bring. It's all covered by his death, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we need to remember this. Because as we're in this world, we're seeing the brokenness, we experience the brokenness in many ways. It's impossible not to in this world. And accusations can come from all different sources. To say Satan can whisper those deceptive things into our ears. That is when we come back to the cross, we come back to the blood of Jesus Christ. This is why from the beginning of the church, everything that the church has been through, we always sing about the blood of Christ. Now that would be weird in any other context to sing about blood. It's not something we really want to think of, but for the Christian, we sing words like this. Oh, the precious blood that flowed from mercy's side, washed away my sin when Christ my Saviour died. Oh, the precious blood of Christ the crucified. It speaks for me before your throne where I stand justified. This is what it does. And therefore, we don't fear the accusations of Satan like that. We come back to the cross and we know that he is defeated and thus he's lying. Because he's the father of lies, that's what he does. And at this point in Revelation, he's about to have his final opportunity to do that, and then time is up for him. It also says that their testimony to God's work is manifest in their lives. Speaking of people probably that we've read about in Revelation who gave their lives during this period, they stood fast. They knew that Christ's kingdom was coming, they knew they were Christ's, and they gave up even their lives at this point. Let's look at verse 12. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. And do you remember, up until this point, we've actually seen the term earth dwellers be the most popular phrase that we've seen in Revelation. Earth dwellers, referring to those who are not believers, who follow the beast at this time, ones who, in fact, are following the world system. But now we have a contrast. We get heaven dwellers mentioned. And we see not the earth dwellers are mourning. They're going through the judgments of the tribulation. The earth dwellers, the heaven dwellers, are rejoicing because they know they are Christ. Who is this? This is his elect angels. This, I believe, is the church resurrected in glory at this time. This is the martyrs from the tribulation who are being killed on earth, but going straight to the Lord. And now we see the reason for this is these final woe judgments. This is why, like I said, the Jewish people in Jerusalem need to flee. This is why John writes, woe, woe, woe. We see these final three woe judgments. Satan is thrown down, he's cast out, and he has great wrath. Now, the picture that's being presented here, if you think of a wild animal that is cornered, maybe injured, and it has no way to escape. They say that's a very dangerous place. You know, don't go near it. Don't, don't make it any, any more angry. That's the picture that we have here. Satan is mortally wounded at this point. He's just lost his access to heaven. Therefore, all of his lies of being acclaimed to being God are, are gone at this point. He's thrown down to the earth. He knows at this point very soon that male child, the prince of all kings, is the prince of, a king of kings is going to come down and crush his head. 
what does he do? He's just enraged, he's unhinged at this point. And we see that he goes after the woman. And we're going to stop there, actually, because there's a lot in this next section that I'm not going to rush through. I'll do this with you next time. We're going to see what happens now as he's thrown down to earth with great wrath. And we're going to also just look at the second coming of Christ a little bit next week before we get there in Revelation 19. But one thing I want you to take away from this, regardless of all of these different things, all the different things we see in the world where we see evil manifest, we see world systems that are standing against Christ, we know we have the victory and we can rejoice with these saints here and we can say, oh, the precious blood of Jesus. No accusation can stand against us if we have the blood of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theology and apologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.